Hello, uh, friends and audience members. Uh, glad you're with us here on the Class Unity podcast. Uh, we're joined today by Sarah Rupp for our interview segment. And of course, Sarah knows as as well as I do that this is the first episode of the Class Unity podcast, and I think probably no better topic to get us started in this episode than the childcare for all resolution which was passed at the DSA National Convention earlier this year. Sarah Roop, uh, forgive me for my incorrect earlier pronunciation, Sarah. Sarah Roop joins us today <laughs> to talk to us about that. She was the author of that resolution, working in close collaboration with a number of other uh, stakeholders in the DSA. And uh, Sarah has joined us today to talk to us about where the idea for that resolution came from, the politics behind it. So we're going to get some political economy from Sarah today, I'm sure, but also then the actual tactics and strategy of getting this thing through the convention. It was a major coup for Class Unity, probably our greatest achievement uh, so far. And it will be, I think, our duty by the end of today's session to have educated the listenership, Sarah, would you agree, um, in, in how, how we get these things done? What, you know, so what what is the strategy? What are the tactics to get this kind of thing through something big like a, like a DSA national convention? So why don't we start at the beginning and work our way from there, Sarah? You know, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're based, and uh, what got you interested in childcare for all? Sure. Thank you for having me. I am from Virginia, and I currently live in Southwest Virginia. Um, Nick, as you know, because you've come to visit. Um, I live in the mountains, uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I got interested in childcare during the pandemic. I wanted to help the working families around me, but I couldn't think of a way to do it that would be like sufficient and move beyond just simple charity. Uh, I was volunteering in a tenants union at the time, and there were these signs that were put up all around the, one of the trailer parks. We were door knocking in for a petition on like safety issues in the trailer park. And there were these signs put up from the school system that were advertising for a like public, like it, it was uh, the sign said like childcare was, no, it said care worker wage starting $12 an hour. And then above it was like janitorial wage, $13 an hour. <laughs> so that kind of gives you um, a sense of like what wage scaffolding exists, like just on a basic level in our public schools. Um, so I was curious about what was going on. I'm like, what type, why they're looking for a working class woman demographic during the pandemic when the schools were closed. So I went to a job interview and there, it was a job fair and there was like six elementary school principals sitting on their phones, like around a big table. And I was like, Hey, I'm here for the job. <laughs> and they were like, well, do you have experience with kids? And I was like, of course. I like as a woman who like went through graduate school, one of the ways I paid for myself was through babysitting for my landlord. <laughs> and he's like, you know, he's a good guy. As this is coming from someone who, you know, does tenant stuff. But like I so I had this like background the last eight years of like being very close to children um, as a nanny. And so I explained that and that I was on an adult kickball team. So I knew how to play kickball with kids. And they were like, 
mostly most of them were on their phones and like didn't look up but some of them one of them was like okay you're hired you're going to be staffing a public daycare we can't legally use the word daycare but it's a public daycare um inside the christiansburg high school cafeteria and um christiansburg is like a town in the new river valley uh which you know is predominantly agriculture um as well as like a lot of a lot of the people there work in a place called the arsenal which is the largest yeah, the largest munitions manufacturer uh, in the United States. It's like produces 95% of bullets. That's in drones. Radford, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is right. Which is a mile from where my elementary school is. So I started working there. I was working with a, a diverse group of women. I was, had a one coworker who was from Panama, another coworker who had run a daycare out of her house for like 11 years. Um, and she was probably my favorite coworker. She was the most radical, I think. Um, and yeah, from there, I was just seeing sort of like the basic struggles of childcare workers, uh, the low wages, uh, the poverty, and uh, basically also the conditions that the children were facing as the state during this emergency period had expanded childcare to be, uh, you know, something the schools did. And it's not like it was free. It cost families $200 a month. And by having a cost, it excluded every minority child and every working class child besides the ones that social services were paying for because they were in foster care. So um, it was, you know, I was working with middle class children for the most part and some kids from social services and seeing the dynamics play out between their different developmental, you know, abilities, uh, which is based on class. I was thinking more about like, child development for the first time in my life and like what goes into it. And at the same time, I was becoming involved in class unity and there was like a need within class unity to set priorities for the caucus because we are a new caucus. So I wrote a priority um, and it was, I think it, it, it might've been the most popular priority. I, I think so like maybe 90% of support within the caucus or something like that. I'm not entirely sure. There was still debate around it. Um, and even the people I was debating with, I'm still you know, friends with to this day. So it, I managed to pass this within the caucus and suddenly it was like, okay, I'm now the only childcare worker in the caucus um, who has this experience. And so I kept like seeing what ways I could push childcare as an issue within DSA because class unity, um, it is a DSA caucus. I wasn't in DSA before joining Class Unity. I had always had my reservations because I don't believe in supporting the Democratic Party. I'm a Marxist feminist. Um, And so I was encouraged to help start a chapter here, uh, which I did. And I was one of its first co-chairs. And at the time, I started also a child care for all working group within my chapter. I had a really interesting group of people. (laughs) Like I had this one guy who ran the local, he didn't run it like a manager, but he was like the only worker because we don't have where I live. It's very rural. We don't have trash come to our house to like trash pickup. You have to bring it to a dump. So he was like the guy who like sits sits at the dump all day. And then um, his his wife, um, she joined DSA specifically to join this working group after hearing about it from him. And those were my two favorite people helping me out. That's lovely. And one of the important things about joining Class Unity is before I had joined Class Unity, I had been writing zines about how I thought women deserved a UBI. 
um, which is kind of a hot take because obviously that's uh, not going to be popular in a lot of different groups for a lot of reasons. But I saw that women were doing the bulk of reproductive labor at home, like mothers right. especially were doing right. most domestic labor as well as most childcare. Um, and research shows that, you know, um, even in two parent households, women are still doing that labor, even if they have a job and two thirds of families uh, have both parents working. So, and, and a lot of times too, women have to drop out of the labor force. And I, I think every year there's like $8 billion in wages that are lost because parents, specifically women, have to drop out of the labor force in order to take care of their children. And of course, that was exacerbated by the pandemic where like every month you saw like 500,000 women at a time dropping out of their jobs because schools were closed. And I think for me, um, there's a huge wage discrepancy between men and women that doesn't come from like discrimination in the workplace from a boss saying like, oh, he's a man, therefore I pay him more because <laughs> he's stronger. <laughs> it's actually because women are dropping out of the workforce to take care of their kids. That's why we have a wage gap. And so for me, like if I wanted equality, I don't think it, you could solve it by giving women a UBI, I think, but by having a universal public good, it gives women who want to work the option to work. So during the pandemic, I was many of my students in the daycare, their, their mothers were doctors and they were nurses and they wanted to work because they're dedicated to their vocation. So those people, we also have to help. Um, they deserve childcare as well. They don't, they shouldn't have to leave the workforce just because they're a woman with a uterus. Like it's an important thing to actually help them have uh, access to childcare. So within class unity, I was like directed towards thinking instead of thinking of it as a UBI thinking of universal childcare as a public good that just simply doesn't exist. So I started doing research into childcare in Scandinavian countries where you have universal childcare from infant care to the age of five. And um, you also have these things called cash for care subsidies, which like if for women who don't use the public childcare facilities, they're given a wage. So they get a wage for housework and domestic labor. It's just in exchange for not using the public daycares. So that's a way to actually get the UBI for women. <laughs> and it would apply to parents. Like it doesn't have to go to a woman either. It could be like a father could get it if they're not the breadwinner. Um, but in most of these countries, 95% of the people who take the cash for care subsidies are still women. Um, right. So anyway, that's a long, long winded. No worries. No, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a good uh, elaboration on uh, what is obviously, you know, uh, a, a multi-month intellectual process on your part to, to come to a connection with this topic and to also realize that class unity was potentially a vehicle for you to make advances with it. Uh, you said something interesting a moment ago, and I wanted to, to return to it. Um, you know, why did you think that class unity, uh, felt a particular connection with this topic. Um, it's in a sense uh, counterintuitive. Um, I hope I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth, but class unity is sort of often thought of as a kind of a class reductionist. Uh, you know, you get this accusation from time to time, a class reductionist caucus. Uh, yet here we are. Uh, this is the, ends up being the most popular proposal for a policy agenda within class unity. Why? Why do you think that was? Well, I think one of the reasons is it's historically been ignored by DSA, and that's because the demographic of DSA are um, middle class 
people who are childless. Um, and so issues like childcare aren't at the forefront in the way Medicare for all is. Right. And another problem is like childcare workers are among the most oppressed workers who have formal contracts in the United States. Like they're making on average nationally $10, maybe $10 and I think it's 50 cents. It could be no 10 72 an hour. And um, like it's $22,000 a year. So this is a unorganized group of working class people who are heavily exploited, whose whole entire industry could and should be nationalized. So from a perspective, I think within class unity, we have, instead of seeing it as like a feminist issue, which I certainly do, but others don't have to, like you can see it as an issue, a class issue, because it certainly is. And also because working class children are the most affected by this because they're more likely to be put in informal care, which can lead to like dangerous situations for the kids um, because informal care structures, like daycares that aren't being like examined by the state, they'll have kids looking at tablets or computers or uh, TV screens during the day, which we know uh, if you're interested in child development, you know, like that's not how kids construct their learning. They have to be able to have input and not just receive input in order to make meaning. Um, And so I think within class unity, we also have a higher probably representation of parents or people mm-hmm. who work with babies. Cause like we have nurses, um, people whose job is to as social workers, they work with women, um, who are pregnant. Um, and you know, we have more parents than I think on average DSA has. So mm. I think that's where the interest lies. That's fantastic. Okay, so um, let's sort of jump time frame now here. We've kind of gone from the abstract intellectual analysis here and the, the, the sort of initial strategic intuition that this might work uh, with class unity to maybe the next step, which is getting this thing nurtured and uh, generating awareness uh, for it in the context of uh, an upcoming uh, DSA convention. Uh, as listeners know, these things happen only every two years. So it's a uh, it's 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 not easy to get uh, your voice heard. There's a lot of people clamoring for attention um, uh, in the spotlight uh, when DSA conventions come around. Sarah, you kind of pulled off a miraculous um, achievement just by getting this thing up for consideration at a DSA convention. Can you just talk us through what that looked like for you? Sure. About uh, four months leading up to convention, I started thinking about what I wanted to do with class unity for convention. And I was encouraged to write a resolution and I had to get a lot of help because my original resolution, I've never, in in order to write something using Robert's rules, you have to write in a very formal voice um, that I don't have. I'm a writer, but I don't have experience writing in, in that type of language. So I was able to get help from class unity and writing it. Um, Really, the important thing was to begin building a profile that people with DSA could interact with. And this is because I know that, like like I said, I subscribe to very specific types of educational pedagogy, which is like the constructivist method. So I think you have to have interaction in order to have educational development in anybody. So one way I did this was by setting up a collaborative reading group across the state of Virginia. And I got people from Maryland as well. Um, I started it from my chapter first. We read um, this book called Birth Strike by Jenny Brown, which is uh, about yes. the, de- yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing book. It's about the declining birth rate and how this affects women um, specifically, but also how it affects children um, mm-hmm. because 
the, the declining birth rate is a big problem for people who believe in welfare programs or social security or public goods, because if you have a smaller base of working people, you have less of a like a group to pay for these sorts of benefits that we desperately need to support our non-working population, which includes disabled people, elderly people, and children. And so if you have a small population, you can't support them as easily and you see austerity cuts. You also see things like infringement on people's uh, right to have abortions. So I was like, this is a I've read the book. It also gave a good background on the different benefits that European countries gave parents that we definitely don't have in America. So, and that information is actually kind of hard to find. So I set up the reading group over the course of four different sessions every two weeks. I had a reading guide. I contacted the author, Jenny Brown, who's with the National Women's Liberation. And she sent me copies of the book for free or low cost, I think. It was like, a couple dollars a copy. She's amazing. And she also got Verso to give us a discount of the book. Cause I just explained like I'm in a, a like a low income area and I'm trying to do a feminist book club. <laughs> and yeah. so then I, I set up a, a social media account, a Twitter account, um, which was VAC for a Virginia childcare for all. And I started growing the account and reaching out to DSA chapter accounts. Um, and also so working group accounts, um, so like the Socialist Feminist Working Group within D.C., um, I started interacting with them, telling them about my reading group, and I was able to get on like their listserv and advertise the reading group that way. So we would pull in at least a dozen people every session, and these are women from DSA chapters all across Virginia and Maryland and D.C., and from there, I began socializing with DSA people for the first time in my life, really. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, and in a, in a constructive way, like we worked through the text together. And at the end, Jenny Brown came and she gave a panel for us uh, where we could ask her questions and hear her thoughts about contemporary issues because the book is a few years old by now. And that was really wonderful. And I get, I'll link to it too in the show notes. I'll give you a link to it. Cause I recorded it. That'd be great. And people can then listen to that. Yeah. yeah. So I had built up this like network of people who are interested in childcare. Um, and I could talk about my experiences, even though I had not been working in childcare for long, like I could talk about it from a first person perspective, which is why I think it's important to be working in these industries that we are trying to, you know, transform. And I also, I began writing with an editor in class unity, an article about my experiences working in childcare and the situation of the market failure of childcare across the United States. And instead of publishing it in class unity, I reached out to a journal called Tempest, which is a oh, DSA yeah. collective uh -huh. and they were willing to publish it. And so I, it was another way for me to extend beyond my basic social network. Cause I don't have social media. I live in the woods. I am very isolated. So it was a way for me to like get, the message out there. Um, another thing I did was I reached out to a high school friend whose name is Justin Rosniak, and he runs a podcast called Well, There's Your Problem that has, mm. like, on average, like, I think 50,000 listens every episode. And I invited him to come visit me because he's also a person of Appalachia, <laughs> as he says. <laughs> so um, he came down, <laughs> he came down um, with his co host. Um, and they stayed and I showed them the 
playground environment where I was working in the public daycare. And I talked about my experiences. And then we decided we would record an episode together. And that got, I think, you know, I haven't checked in a few months, but it got like 50,000 views. And so I knew DSA people listen to that podcast because it's a very popular form of alternative media. So from there, I had hit like all these bases where I had written an article, created a like a social media account that DSA people were engaging with. And I had gone on a podcast. So, and I had built up these relationships with um, women um, from SochFem, the working group, the National Caucus. Uh, I don't know if it's caucus actually. Well, hmm. you know what I mean. <laughs> I do, yeah. Yeah. It's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So leading up to convention, we, I had invited friends from Class Unity down to stay with me as well. Cause I felt, I was starting to feel afraid. <laughs> um, like I was just, you know, getting restless at the thought of this, all this time being sunk into this um, and the chance that it would not pass. So it was good to have friends here and to meet people in person. Cause it was like, you know, comrades who are doing all sorts of amazing organizing where they live. And it also gave me the morale I needed to like, you know, <laughs> keep a strong spine, I guess. Um, because it can be very scary negotiating within DSA, um, given the sort of like cancel culture that is apparent even in the convention where we saw people who were, uh, we saw CPN release documents about CPN as a DSA caucus and, or was, (laughs) I don't know. And they, uh, released like a document, you know, basically canceling multiple members who are running for NPC. And I was mm. like, what if this happens to me to get like, Gosh. someone just wants to get rid of childcare for all. So like they could do any number of things to like drag me through the mud. And, um, and then like this convention was different from previous conventions. Although this was of course my first convention in DSA, mm-hmm. cause I am a new DSA member. Um, so I had to get elected as delegate too, which was, you know, complicated as well. And then, the week leading up to convention, the convention chairs opened up a Slack where we could communicate with the entire delegation, DSA national delegation of like 13 or 1400 people. And so I had one of the women who was like in my reading group with me, who is a rep, like a social femme um, person. She's a really amazing person. I won't name her because I don't want her <laughs> to get dragged into anything, but, but, um, she was helping me, um, along with people from class unity to like whip votes, which means like getting people onto our side. Um, she like went out of her way to message every single person, like in the delegation slack, I think it took her like five or six hours telling them her personal story and how she, like being raised by a single mother, having gone through the daycare system herself, how important a cause like universal childcare and childcare for all is to her. And um, I was doing the same thing by responding to people's questions in the Slack about it and debating them. Cause like, you know, part of being a principled Marxist is engaging in debate with people, even if you don't agree with them. Yeah. And from there, I think we had like a really solid, <laughs> like people were, it didn't seem like people were really willing to criticize the um, resolution. Oh, and another thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So like the resolution was also heavily amended. I can explain that whole process as well, if you're interested. Please do. Yeah. I'd be very interested. Yeah. Okay, cool. The original resolution I wrote with, I asked for a, uh, specifically, I wanted an economist to write policy for working groups. So 
the thing I had run into with childcare for all is that like, oh, okay, okay, we need to backtrack. So one of the <laughs> other things that really inspired me to like join DSA and engage in electoral work at all, because I, you know, I supported Bernie Sanders, but I had previously like written off electoral politics completely. And I think I have yeah. it again, but like one of the things that um, inspired me to try this was mm-hmm. um, Portland, Portland's Up Now campaign, which was Universal Preschool Now campaign, which um, Portland is Multnomah County in Oregon. And uh, during the Black Lives Matter protests, the DSA working group there, it, they were based out of a tax the rich working group. Um, they had collected over 30,000 signatures at these protests for to get people to support a ballot initiative um, that would cover three and four-year-olds public um, daycare, so Mm -hmm. preschool. um, And that was successful. It passed November. um, And I had talked to one of the lead organizers and I was really impressed with their work and um, where they were coming from because, you know, she also believed in play-based childcare. And I was like, oh, so this is possible. Like you can actually do a successful ballot campaign. Unfortunately, you can't in Virginia because there is no, you can't do direct ballot initiatives, um, everything. We have a much less democratic system here in this state where you have to go through the General Assembly, which of course means you're working with and against um, state senators and state like legislators who, for the most part, you know, are too lazy to get up off their asses and like protect abortion rights, like <laughs> in their mm-hmm. last term, this, you know, like that's like something that um, we're dealing with here in Virginia right now. So I had saw that this, um, that they had had a successful campaign. And I, when I wrote the original one, I was thinking my working group our the biggest problem we had is we had no one who could write an actual bill or right. analyze a tax base in Virginia to write right. um, a complex tax base uh, um, analysis to show that a progressive income tax could supply um, enough funding to cover universal childcare, which I would say is infant care to, you know, up until kids are school ready. And so I was like, how am I going to like hire someone in this chapter to do this? Portland had um, a woman named Mary King. Yeah, Mary King. She was the feminist economist who wrote their bill. And they also were able to fundraise to, I think, $15,000 themselves to pay for a tax attorney to like look at the legislation and make it, you know, suitable to actually pass through their um their type of, I don't know what it is called there, but like uh, their general assembly. And so I didn't know how I was going to do that in Virginia because I didn't have the capacity to fundraise $15,000 on my own. And I didn't have anyone who in my chapter was already an economist or a tax attorney. So I was like, you know what DSA needs is like, we need a tax attorney or an economist to do this for chapters all over. At the national level, yeah. At the national level. And, you know, there's a basis for this in DSA's history. Um, Michael Harrington, it, in an interview with a conservative, I forget his name, but in an interview while he was still alive, um, he said that one thing he wished that America had was a way for minority people to, like, contact the government to do research for them on behalf of issues that were interesting to them. Um, like if you wanted to build legislation for childcare or for any sort of like, um, issue, you would, you could, you should be able to get help from the government to do this for free. 
So instead of looking at the government for this help, I was like, why can't the DSA with its broad base of membership, like help chapters do this? And I was in the original document document that I wrote, I was like, it was kind of funny. I was like, the person, the economist should get paid the salary of a childcare worker. So like $22,000 a year, which is, you know, quite, quite low for um, someone of, someone of that intellectual caliber, I guess. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I thought like if they had their skin in the game, they would be more motivated to do it. Um, And so one of the lead organizers from up now, after I had already gotten enough signatures to pass my original resolution onto the um, convention, she offered to amend the resolution um, with her up now, like campaign comrades. And she, her amendment was basically like, you can't have a single tax attorney or single economist look at different states because people are specialized or they've passed the bar in their specific state. So someone who's passed the bar in Oregon can't help someone like me in Virginia because it requires a local, um, someone who's passed the bar locally. So she was like, it would be better if you asked for a funding pool, like a large pool of funds that you could apply for. Um, and that way you could um, have more flexibility with who you hire for your, and like for your needs. And I thought that sounded good. Um, yeah. And it made more sense suddenly to me because, you know, this is my first time doing anything like this. Yeah, um, and yeah. she's an expert. Yeah. And I was really appreciative of her feedback. And I co-signed, the, I co-wrote technically the resolution with her, the amended version. Um, and it also, it kept things that were important to me. Like um, it gave under, it was it dedicated about $95,000 of DSA dues towards a fund that people could apply for, but also towards paying a staff member to help centralize a campaign within DSA so that you could have like a national DSA website for childcare for all, um, a mailing list, someone controlling a mailing list, which is like the mm. labor of the mailing list. Um, right, right, right. And or facilitating meetings between different chapters and different working groups across the country. Cause I was doing a lot of work already on my own and I felt like I needed, you know, I, someone needs to get paid to do this. Um, and, I needed help. Uh, so that was the, the amendment process, um, made it more successful. I think it made it, I got, it bought in more support from people who I don't think normally would support a class unity resolution, um, different caucuses. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because it would have been amended by really well-respected organizers in DSA who are not affiliated with our caucus at all. Um, and yeah, I think it made it stronger. So Leading up to convention, I was advocating for the amended version of my own resolution. Um, And that was, you know, that just required telling people why the amendment was important and also why the original version was also important because uh, the way DSA convention works is you vote first on the amended version. So I was like trying to get that to pass, um, but I had to also support my original version in case that didn't pass because um, you'd have to then right. vote on the original version. Okay. So we're, I think we're at an exciting point of the conversation now, and I appreciate I've kept you already for, for over half an hour here, but but uh, the day comes, right? The convention comes around and uh, you've been busy, as you said, in the, in the Slack and working with these various stakeholders, these various parties from around the country to try to get buy-in for this thing, I'm sure various members of class unity are helping you out with this in various ways but uh lo and behold the day comes and and you get this thing across the line and and not just by a narrow margin in some ways your um your job 
starts there, right? Because there's a lot of getting this thing passed is just the beginning of the story in some ways. Is that not the case? Yeah, absolutely. Because this isn't the first popular child care resolution to come through convention. There was one at the previous convention in 2019 that was also passing passed with wide support. And it was actually for chapters to provide child care for their meetings and to look into child care as like a special mm-hmm. interest issue for a lot of people. And it passed. But unfortunately, after that convention, the organizing base that had passed this, which was Sochfen's Fem's national working group collapsed and was um, like defunct for a year, maybe a year and a half, and had only recently gotten back on its feet that summer of convention. So I knew that unless there was organizers who were stably pursuing this after convention, it, nothing would ever happen. Even if it, it passed, just because of the way DSA works is like at convention, you vote with all these delegates on you know, tons and tons of resolutions, only some of them will make the floor of convention. Some of them get passed automatically through this thing called a consent agenda. Um, but others, like Class Unity also passed a Spanish translation uh, resolution through the consent agenda, which is important because a lot of uh, like materials aren't translated for DSA into Spanish. And like at the same time, like we had to, uh, we have to figure out a way as a caucus to continue pursuing childcare for all. Um, and getting the NPC, which is the governing, well, I don't know how to explain it. It's the leading organizational body of DSA to actually act on this. And so they meet four times a year and in their first meeting, they didn't act on it. Um, but the other way to do this would be like to have someone from NPC introduce it into a steering committee meeting for NPC. Um, and making sure that the fund actually gets established because I've already had like chapters like Peninsular DSA, which is in California. They have a, a universal preschool working group. I forgot its specific name. Um, but if you Google childcare or, or universal preschool Peninsular DSA, you'll find it. Um, and they had fundraised like thousands and thousands of dollars for their campaign, but they were still five or $6,000 short of their goal. And they were like, is that fun there? And I was like, unfortunately, no, because NPC hasn't acted on it, um, even though it's you know almost January, which is supposed to be the deadline for when the, I wrote into the resolution an actual deadline because I was scared that they weren't going to act on it immediately. Because a lot of times right now, the NPC is prioritizing the Green New Deal. And a lot of the people on the NPC, they didn't actually, even though this was widely popular um, in DSA and, in our, and in, among the delegates, most NPC members who were elected to NPC didn't vote for it. They voted against it. So we're actually, we have a, an uphill battle to get this group of elected people to actually support this um, and to see it as an organizational priority um, to help parents, to help children, um, and to help the working class. Sarah, I guess my last question, and you've uh, let, you've led me to it quite neatly, I think, is uh, what can ordinary DSA members, be they members of Class Unity or elsewhere in the organization, what can they do to help you with this agenda? So I think the most important thing is to work together with other people to figure out what you can do within your community to support universal childcare. If you're in a place where direct ballot initiatives are 
possible, like Oregon or San Francisco or Los Angeles, you should start a child care for all working group where your plan is to advocate for like a like a statewide or countywide universal child care bill funded through a progressive income tax. And the progressive income tax aspect is really important because if you read studies about, um, you know, Scandinavian countries where this has been instituted, it actually ends up leveling income inequality over the long term. So children who are born in poverty will grow up and like have more wealth, while children who are born from the middle class are more likely to grow up and have less wealth. So you're narrowing the margin between rich and poor. Um, so making sure that you're funding it from something like a progressive income tax and not something unstable like a vape tax or a soda tax, because right, other right. counties have tried that before. And you also making sure that you're not having a campaign for anything that's means tested because means testing creates a bureaucratic PMC class. Yeah. And it cuts people out constantly. Um, So I would say like start a working group. And so if you can't do that, so say you're in Virginia and you're like, how would I pass a bill in the general assembly? Well, another thing you could do is try and get your after-school programs to be free because elementary after-school programs during the pandemic were expanded to be public daycares. And if we could make those free, we could really help a lot of kids, um, especially in emergency situations. But on average, um, after-school is like the most affordable, accessible childcare for working-class children. Um, And if we could expand it to make it free, you would be helping a lot of kids have like good supervised like free play where they're in a safe environment but they're allowed to have free play with other children which leads to better socio-emotional development for kids um and would it would help cover the gap for working parents who have jobs that don't that exist beyond the school day which is you know an inconvenient like nine to three or so you know so having a full covered like 6 a.m to 7 p.m. after school, before and after care, making it free, that would be an excellent idea for a campaign. The other effort you could do is to, you know, uh, try and unionize childcare workers. And there's a lot of ways you can do it. You could join the IWW, you could start working in childcare, you mm-hmm. could build a base among childcare workers to see if you can uh, start a unionization effort because it's largely an unorganized workforce. And the other thing you could do is join a teacher's union um, and become like a after-school aide uh, to see if you could get the unions that already exist, which largely are business unions and pretty bureaucratic, right? Because teachers unions are catering to a different class than childcare workers. But regardless, like they could still be manipulated, not manipulated, they could still be like, you know, if you had a big enough base of people paying union dues, that are aides or after-school workers or, you know, recess workers, lunch aides saying like, we demand that the union like agitate the school board for public after-school programs. That could be a huge thing for a group of people that have power um, organizationally to advocate for. Wonderful. Sarah Roop, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us today. If, uh, if people want to stay on top of this, how can they do so? Is there a social media think, outlet they can they can stay tuned to? Oh wow! Um, I yeah, I would say that the best thing they could do would be to join Class Unity um, yeah. and to come come to meetings uh, where we discuss it, right. um, and right. to make sh- and to you know reach out to me directly. I yeah. can give you an email for the show notes. Yeah, sure. uh, I have a Twitter account. I would say like, it's not the most important thing right now. Um, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. sure. But, no, no problem at all. No problem at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, thanks so much. Uh, I really appreciate your time and uh, I can't wait for this uh, interview to go out. Uh, really looking forward to hearing what people have to say. And uh, we, as always, we look forward to hearing uh, the listeners' feedback um, on our various Class Unity uh, contact points. Uh, I'll put those in the show notes. And uh, Sarah, thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Uh, thanks for listening, people out there. And have a good <laughs> good day or night or wherever you are. <laughs> exactly. All right. Okay, everyone. So uh, welcome to our part two of episode one of the Class Unity podcast. I'm really glad to be uh, joined today by Jamal Abdul Rabba. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, Sarah Nelson. Jamal Abdrabbo. Okay. Uh, you'll give me a, a lesson on how to pronounce that later, I hope. And then we have Julie Stout joining us as well. So I, I want to just quickly go around the table here and see if uh, we can get some introductions from everyone. Uh, who are you? Where do you live? And how did you get involved in Class Unity? Uh, let's start uh, uh, with, uh, with uh, Julie, if that's possible. Hi. Okay. Um, my name's Julie Stout, and I live in Niles, Ohio. And I got interested in Class Unity when I heard Jamal on a platypus podcast talking about how um, AOC was shite. Yeah, I heard that one too. <laughs> I heard that episode too. That was a great episode. <laughs> well done for I that thought, one, Jamal. This is somebody that I really need to connect with. And so let me see what this class unity is all about. Very good. And and the, and, and history cast its stone. Okay. And so uh, with us also today, Sarah Nelson, uh, joining us from Virginia. Would you care to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Sarah. I live in Craig County, Virginia, inside the Jefferson National Forest. And I found this caucus through a subreddit called Stupid Paul. <laughs> I mean, should I Edit come up with out. a lie? <laughs> Edit that out. I don't know what to say. What's the just, real? Just what am through, I supposed just to say? say? Reddit. Just say through Reddit. <laughs> I found uh, it through Reddit. Through social media. Say through, it through social media. Through that I don't social media. have. I have yeah. no social media. So <laughs> what are they? Yeah. Okay. I. I didn't. I didn't find the caucus. It found me. So. Uh, why don't we go to Jamal speaking off there, uh, see if he can introduce himself. Yeah. So I'm Jamal. I'm from Chicago. Um, and I was one of the founders of Class Unity. So that's how I heard about it. Oh, well, that was a short answer. Shorter answer than I was hoping for Jamal. I was thought you might elaborate <laughs> a little bit, but let's go. Oh, to you want me to elaborate on, <laughs> yeah. on why we found the, yeah, the caucus? Yeah. Sure. If you don't mind. Okay, sure. In, so, a, 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 so, um, Basically, the the kind of impetus for the founding of the caucus was the spring split, which is kind of a bit of DSA arcana that I think probably no one really cares about anymore. But at the time, it seemed like kind of a big deal. Basically, um, DSA had 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 this big membership resurgence, you know, following the initial Bernie campaign, um, you know, in 2016, lots of new members. The organization prior to that had been basically a an irrelevancy, you know, just kind of a holding pen for, um, you know, old labor Zionists and stuff like that. Um, 
And so the Bernie Bounce gave new life to the organization. It became sort of the, the preeminent organization of the American left. Um, but it was politically inchoate and Marxists within the organization were a definite minority. Um, <clears throat> and at the time, there was some hope that even if Marxists were a definite minority, that the broad mass of new members might be won over to a Marxist standpoint, um, you know, basically by, you know, persuasion and so on and so forth. So um, the Spring Caucus was founded basically to be the Marxist caucus in DSA. Um, it was founded in January of 2019. By March of 2019, it had collapsed. <laughs> so it, it lasted mm. less than two months. Um, as a functional caucus, it lasted probably until mid-February, as far as I can tell. Um, it was basically rat-fucked from the inside by um, the caucus that is now known as Bread and Roses. Um, this is stuff that... Um, Someone should really write an article about it hasn't really been laid out publicly, but um, there were a variety of sort of internal disagreements that became apparent over the course of the month and month and a half of the founding of the Spring Caucus um, that that basically caused a purge of 45 percent of the membership. And um, Class Unity was founded basically by people who had seen some hope in what the Spring Caucus initially seemed to be and were like, well, you know, if that fell apart, there's no reason why we can't just found a Marxist caucus and, you know, try to try to make something, you know, happen in the organization, uh, you know, in, in the aftermath of that sort of uh, rather depressing episode. Very good. Very good. Thanks, everyone. Uh, so, guys, today we are discussing how Draper's 1976 essay, Anatomy of the Microsect, but before we get into this essay, and uh, I think just for the folks who might be unfamiliar with him, who who was Hal Draper and what is his historical significance for the American left? Sarah, I think you've been looking at some of his uh, background. Yeah, so I guess I can try this, but there's just so many splits. It's really hard to keep track of um, with Hal Draper. Okay, so I know that he was... Um, <laughs> Part of the student anti-war movement, and this would have been World War II, right? So, yeah, yeah not like Vietnam. Um, oh, really? World War II. Okay. Yeah, because um, he ended up moving to Berkeley later on um, with his wife because they met in the student anti-war movement. Her name okay. was Anne. Um, and they went on to move to Berkeley for the second anti-war movement after like the New Left and the free speech movement. Um but they were working as steel workers at the time. So they have an actually pretty interesting backgrounds. Um, okay. So I think the socialist party split into the socialist workers party, which then split into the workers party. And he was a member of the workers party, but not the socialist workers party. Um, because a lot of this is a critique of the socialist workers party. So yeah, he, he has a background where he experienced a lot of splits in the left. Um, and I think he was considered like a third campus. So he's someone who rejected like Russia. So when the socialist worker party split, oh wait, no, the socialist party split from the fourth international. He was on the side of Carter, like Carterism. Um, so rejecting Stalinist bureaucracy, but also like Washington's politics, like Rooseveltism. I don't know if that's how you say it. Um, Sounds good. Jamal, any 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 background on Hal Draper in your in the recesses of your mind? So, what 
what I think is interesting about Hal Draper is that he's talking about the new left in this article, but he is not of the new left, right? He was already fully matured intellectually when, when these events were happening. Um, so he is a product in terms of his sort of intellectual formation of the old left, which is something that we, from our vantage point, have almost no sort of direct knowledge of. Like the only old left that we have in our lives is basically Bernie Sanders, who is of the generation of the new left, but is sort of com comportamentally <laughs> of the old left, right? He has sort of a, an old left style or affectation to him, but even he is, an, is of the generation of the new left, right? So Hal Draper, you know, and, and he does, I, I guess I don't want to get into like actually talking about the article yet because, because we're still talking about the man, but um, I, there, there is this part in the article where he says um, uh, something like when, when the radical movement was temporarily, uh, you know, uh, uh, emerging from non, from non-workers, right. From students. And he says this basically like, oh, this is just a, a passing fad. Everything will be back to normal soon. The workers will be back in charge of the, of the, of the left again. Everything will be fine. And here we are, God knows how many decades later, and the idea that that was a temporary passing thing, right? No way, man. He, mm -hmm. he, he was caught totally off guard by that. And I, I don't know. <laughs> that, that to me is just sort of... Um, the the most clarifying thing about reading this whole piece is that mm -hmm. this is a guy who is within a changing paradigm, um, but who doesn't realize that the change is permanent. He thinks that, okay, we can just sort of turn back the clock, go back and, and you know, maybe things will be fine. And it's like, no way, man, the, the horse is out of the, the stable. But I don't know if that was helpful. In any way. That's super helpful. So, I mean, I have to say, I mean, reading the, the piece, I frequently find myself surprised uh, in, in the same way that I find myself surprised when I read, you know, the, the Ehrenreich's essays on the advent of the professional managerial class, uh, which of course were written around about the same time. Um, because like that other essay, th th they all seem to sort of uh, anticipate a lot of the debates that we are having today on the left, especially in the United States, but I think also globally. Uh, and it just makes you think that many of these issues that we're confronted with today aren't as new as we might imagine. I mean, I'm, certainly they might be sort of accentuated by the the rise of Twitter and social media, but um, you know, which is which is a, a serious difference. But nevertheless, they are they 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 have been around for some time. I mean, this this essay was written the year I was born, which is shocking to me. Um, so so I, I, let's. Maybe just for the listeners, try to start with the general picture here um, to sort of set out the stall. We can say that the left today seems to be, you know, pretty well capable of mobilizing uh, large numbers of people and getting them into the street for short-term protests in the wake, for example, of the George Floyd uh, murder. Um, but we seem to have no real way uh, of converting this energy, this protest energy into a kind of a long-term sustained project. We don't really have an institution to convert that energy into power. And for some, the problem is, of course, that we're conflating the performativity of protest for real strategy. And so in Draper's terms, this is where we enter the essay, right? We have a problem of the a, a sect mindset. So maybe you guys can help me out here. 
what exactly is a sect for Draper and what is his grievance against them? Um, maybe Julie, you'd want to start for us and we can just see where we go from there. Well, my understanding of Draper's definition of a sect is that it's very programmatic and it requires one to adhere to a certain specific set of principles in order to attain membership. Great. Okay. So uh, let's, let's try and unpack that a little bit. If anyone wants to jump in, go ahead. So um, I think Julie's definition was good that a sect is also something with like really rigid boundaries. So there is like a, an in-group and an out-group of a sect, um, like you're a member or you're not. And that every sect sees itself as like, like the party of the working class embodying the working class's will and carrying its will forward. Um, but often, of course, that's not the case. Um, so yeah, a sect, I like the beginning. It starts with saying like a sect is like a cuss word. It still is like we dismiss organizations all the time as sects. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the sect in Draper's terminology um, and, and just in his personal lived experience is sort of indistinguishable from Trotskyism, right? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, there are non-Trotskyist sects, but the sects that really formed Draper were Trotskyist sects. And that was one of the more, more interesting developments in the Anglosphere in particular, because it's something that's shared in the US, the UK, Ireland as well, right, had a relatively still has, I think, a relatively thriving Trotskyist movement. Not the case anywhere else in the developed world. Trotskyism had no success at all, right? But the Anglosphere, for whatever reason, and I can't really go into why because I have no fucking clue, but had this huge (coughs) explosion of Trotskyist parties. And, you know, the, the Trotskyist movement is sort of defined by the basic notion that we were right all along and we lost and that is unfair. And as long as we are right, someday we'll win, you know? And I think that is why Trotskyist parties tend to, um, tend to splinter so frequently and tend to form these micro sects so, so frequently because the, their, their primary, like the thing that they're orienting themselves towards is not any particular demographic out there in the working class or what have you. They're orienting themselves towards this ideal program that they think will be the key to then achieving these other goals, right? And so when there's any sort of disagreement over the ideal program, there's a crisis because you, the, the program is all that you have. And if you start disagreeing about the program, or if you start accusing other people of disagreeing about the program, then you're done. You've got to split. Like that, that's the end of it, right? And I, I think that so like the the this this sect behavior sort of emerges from the Trotskyist movement, and that's the context that Hal Draper is sort of most familiar with, but it hasn't really been limited to the Trotskyist movement. It's it's sort of you know, proliferated well beyond that. Yeah, on, I, mean, I, the, I think you're right. The closest he gets to a thesis statement in this thing uh, is, uh, I'll just maybe give a quick quote here, uh, where he says, uh, you know, it's this course of microsectism, <laughs> for want of a better term, which is today dominant among 
the U.S. left, the the sect form, excuse me, of the American socialist groupment today is a roadblock in the way, and the sect notions uh, that are dominant among this groupment constitute a poison which could immobilize and abort a socialist movement even if it got started. So you know, it's it's just it's he's sort of n- not pulling his punches there at all. You know, it's uh, it's uh, it, you know, there's no doubt that sects have been around for a long time, but uh, they are particularly uh, grave uh, phenomena for the American left today. So, you know, there's a lot we can say here about strategy and and things like this, but um, it, it might help the listener if we start to sort of break down some of the terminology here. So, one of the the, the sort of key, I think, uh, aspects of this piece is to sort of recognize that it was written in a specific place in a specific time. Uh, I think Jamal was already kind of touching on this, but one of our goals today, I think, is to try to think through how applicable uh, this piece may or may not be to our own context today. Obviously, you know, it was 45 years ago since it was written. So some of it feels like it really lands today, but we want to be careful, right? We don't want to conflate contexts too much. So Draper, uh, in his own time, as a Marxist, is is setting up this idea that there is a, a classic leftist sect tendency and um when it when it surfaces it seems to always basically do the same thing and i'm just going to quote here it counterposes its sect criterion of programmatic points that just goes back to what julie was saying early on here you know the program is essential here and it, it so it counterpoises its sect criterion of programmatic points against the real movement of the workers in the class struggle and the real case of this counterposing for Draper in his context is the hostile relationship between the American left and the trade union movement. And he talks a lot about the Vietnam War there and how uh, the anti-war movement kind of looked down its nose a little bit at the workers' movement, not entirely without merit because the workers' movement was kind of slow to the party uh, in opposing the war. But Nevertheless, the reaction of the kind of college-educated left, uh, the official kind of movement left, as it were, uh, to the trade union movement uh, went sort of way beyond the deserved response uh, in, in that situation. They, 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 they uh, sort of admonished and then distanced themselves radically from uh, the union movement. So, you know, we have this... Um, a really rich passage here where he's sort of talking about this kind of uh, movement left as, uh, and I quote, educated by uh, sociological brainwashers of the academy. And he sort of fleshes out in, in various passages the kind of really damaging effects of the grip of these brainwashers on the mindset of radical students. So d- does anyone want to sort of help me flesh this out a little bit here? Classic sectism, Surfacing in that context, are we are we of a mind that there may be some application of of this uh, tendency to become sex to our own time? Sarah, would you like to start? Sure. Um, I think one of the sex that first occurred to me while reading this, especially the passage you brought up about um, the students who were like leeching off of the trade unionist movement only to disavow it later on. Uh, would be like the Socialist Equity Party who run the World Socialist website um, and their way they constantly disavow unionism um, and trade unionism in specific. Um, but I, and there are other things too, like I, I see like the 
sort of like time killing enterprise of unity negotiations of constantly coming up with like ratifying documents is something that I've experienced in DSA where we have like a convention where a good chunk of it was spent like uh, writing, I guess it was like 40 page long uh, points of unity. What was it called again? I don't remember at this point, but it was, and there was like tedious sort of meetings about like, how do you want this to be amended only for none of our amendments to like actually be like anything I voiced in my meetings that I went to, none of it was actually taken in. Um, so it does feel like that it was like a time killing enterprise um, to set up this like point of unity document that not everybody agrees with. Um, the platform, right? The platform. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, I see plenty of it today and I guess on one hand, we see like DSA covets, like the labor bureaucracy in the United States. Um, and on the other poll there, you have like Trotskyist sex today, like um, rejecting labor bureaucracy in totality. Um, so, yeah, there's a dynamic there. Cool. Um, Julie, any- seems like, yeah, it seems like the 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 sex breaking down. um Let's be real. It's about personal stuff. It's about like somebody sleeping with somebody else's girlfriend stuff. Like, (laughs) I don't think that most of the conflict that is happening in the last few years within DSA is about programmatic or ideological issues at all. Okay, so you're disagreeing with the piece here. Well, no, I think Hal Draper was speaking about what he was seeing that was happening in his time. But I think that that is not what we're dealing with right now. I think that, you know, my generation and younger, um, I'm 46, like we're okay with being tolerant with a wide variety of ideologies. It's just how we were brought up. And so it's less applicable now as it was in his time. And so now what we have is we have major conflicts in large city chapters happening because of a personal disagreement or beef of somebody with somebody else. And, you know, there could be like embezzled funds or just like personal like hatred or you know, or something totally petty. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, no, I I think you're right to focus on that because of course, uh, these kinds of uh, very micro uh, issues do surface. Um, But I don't know that I would be as quick as you to say uh, that it's not about programmatic uh, issues. I think there's all kinds of ways uh, programs, programmatic uh, politics are, are on the table here, but they tend to, I suppose, with the advent of what we might call the horizontalist left, uh, which um, is a combination, I think, of various tendencies within Trotskyism and maybe Maoism, which, of course, gets mentioned in the piece as well. Um, and, of course, anarchism, you know, have, have kind of um, entered the milieu today. And so, uh, I, I think often part of the issue, and this is maybe one area where I would maybe modify Draper a little bit, is to say that some of these programmatic points are today more implicit than explicit. They, uh, I'm reminded of uh, Tufeki's piece a few years ago where she, co- she 
about, about the rise of the adhocracy. I think she wrote this in the New York Times um, uh, a couple of years ago now. Um, you know, where where basically the the, the goalposts seem to shift a lot uh, today um, about you know what kinds of language we can use, how we should address each other, and so it kind of comes out of this idea that the personal is political, uh, which is a very new left idea, I think. And so, of course, the what is defined as personal is a is a is a moving uh, trajectory i think um and, and that that's the problem of course uh we 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 take a very kind of um purist and absolutist attitude to a moving target uh, and and that that's where i think people get tripped up because we're applying criteria to to oftentimes to people who are not yet caught up with the latest uh, vocabulary and things like this um so, so jamal so you wanted in- to pop in there yeah, like I, I think I think Julie is right to say that a lot of the programmatic um, sort of disagreement is just a manifestation of interpersonal beef or potentially different career incentives or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a difference from Draper's own time, though. Like I, I think you know fundamentally what Draper is describing is a is a constellation of symptoms. Um, and the sect is a symptom of the underlying disease. And I'm not quite sure the extent to which Draper sort of conceives of it in this way, but this is how it seems to be to me. And this is how I conceive of it, right? Like the explosion of Trotskyist parties and sects and stuff like the SDS and, you know, all these other tiny little groups that emerged with the new left um, were in a sense, the, newly emerging middle class coming into its own and founding its own independent political institutions. And part of that was, was having to draw clear lines between themselves and the preceding generation of political institutions of the left, which were working class institutions, which were the trade union movement, uh, to a certain extent, the Socialist Party and the Communist Party in the United States, but obviously in Europe to a much larger extent, the mass membership, Social Democratic and Communist Parties that existed there. So the 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 kind of um, the obsession with creating doctrine, enforcing doctrine, um, purging each other over doctrinal differences as opposed to actual identifiable identifiable differences in in tactics or or what have you that that have sort of real life valence it seems to me to stem directly from simply the middle class composition of these organizations right like um and and when you, when you when you look at sort of the behavior and this is not something that that is new like this is something that marx himself you know talks about all the time right like these middle class utopian socialist organizations that don't have their you know eye on the ball that are constantly sort of running off you know uh, you know following these ideas every which way and and never accomplishing anything um to a certain extent like when you have a critical mass of middle class people and you don't have any working class people or very few working class people around um, and the middle class people aren't really orienting themselves towards the working class in, in any, they're not like purposefully turning themselves towards the working class and being like, okay, that's our goal. We have to figure out how to, how to mobilize this constituency. Um, the middle class will just behave this way, right? It, it's untethered, you know, from the material conditions of the working class. It is, as he says, heavily propagandized by the university system. Um, heavily propagandized by the jobs that they have, right? Where they're very strictly managed, where they manage other people, right? Um, 
and it just seems to me that this is something that that it's a natural outgrowth of the class composition of the movements that he is referring to. And the movements that he's referring to are now basically the entirety of the left, because there is no working class component to the left anymore, at least not, you know, obviously there are individual working class people, but the left doesn't really have any connection to the working class. The trading movement, we're, we're seeing some signs of hope, but is, has been quite moribund for quite a while. So yeah, I don't know. I will. But I want to give a shout out to our union brothers and sisters. I mean, they're still hanging in there. They're not as large of a percentage of the population as they used to be, but they're they're there and they're our brothers and sisters. Yeah. But so like what what Draper was saying was at this moment where there's this decoupling of the union movement from the left, right? Like Draper is saying the left sort of oriented itself against the union movement, as you were saying, Nick, you know, not entirely unreasonably on issues like Vietnam or what have you. Um, but now we're several decades removed from that. And it's like the, the decoupling is complete, basically, at this point. Like the union movement and the left may as well be two completely separate universes. They're, they're very small, you know, sort of overlaps, like, you know, labor notes. You've got these reform caucuses like TDU and what have you. Um, you know, there, there's some interpenetration there, sure. But um, it, it, it's nothing like what it was even in his own time. And his own time was already seeing this decoupling begin, right? Um, so we're we're at a we're at a point where I think that, and, and this is why I go back to to how he says how it was temporary. Let me find that exact quote because it's um, yeah. He says the basic strategy for building a socialist movement lies in fusing two movements: the class movement for this or that step, which gets a decisive sector of the class into collision with the established powers of state and bourgeoisie, a collision on whatever scale possible, and the work of permeating this class movement with educational propaganda for social revolution, which integrates the two. If this has been true in the best days of the Marxist movement to a greater or lesser extent, it took grotesque forms in the recent past of the American left, i.e. during the 60s, when the radical impulse was temporarily coming from non-worker sectors students and some blacks not rooted in working class life, for example, right? Um, temporarily, he thinks this is temporary. He thinks this is a momentary setback. The, the workers movement will be back any day now. It'll all be fine. And it's that was not what happened at all. Like we are living now in the remains of a left where that process was never halted. And where, so now our our role, I think, and, and the role that he was kind of setting for himself was, okay, how do we reverse this process? How do, and, and he didn't come up with any solutions. And I guess, yeah, we'll, we'll see if we manage to do any better. <laughs> Hope so. Um, I'm going to DSA strike checking calls. Um, and those are just really heartwarming. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you're right the left is separated from labor. And so somebody has to say, Hey, we're here. We support you solidarity. And so DSA chapters have been going out to picket lines and joining picket lines and the workers are surprised. And, you know, the DSA members are surprised and they stand together. It's new, but we're doing more of it. I think one of the major differences between Draper's, like when he's writing this and now is that we don't have the like 
open aversion to class politics back then that you see today. Um, and in part, I think too, if you look at the way he's talking about these Trotskyist formations um, and the way they're broken apart from the student movement, you can see like the history of the Socialist Workers Party as an example. Uh, the SWP like had a large base in steelworkers, like unions and in factory floors, uh, and also in the automobile industry. But one of the problems with the SWP is that they could never integrate their youth party um, into actually going and salting these factories. They would have these college kids like work these 60 hour weeks in meat plants and then they wouldn't see them ever again. Like they would have them come <laughs> to their meetings and then they would just never come back um, because you can't like to integrate these classes in this way is a really difficult process that not everybody's prepared for. Uh, but I still think like the way that this piece kind of characterizes these Trotskyist movements uh, as like complete failures. Like he says that nowhere did it's like, and speaking of the new left, he says nowhere did it amount to like any actual movement of militants. Um, and I don't know if that's true either, because you can look at like, well, speaking of solidarity, like solidarity itself was a Trotskyist party and they ended up forming labor notes, which today is still like the like most antagonistic, like publication for unions, um, like advancing their militancy, but also like critiquing them from the inside. Um, so I don't know. When I think about it, I think like the difference between today and back then is like we don't even have as many people like making up the composition of the unions that he had. Like he mm -hmm. had in these different Trotskyist organizations, like they had cadre groups of people who were you know, running for union office, winning, um, and also winning negotiations um, up until at least like Reagan, probably when all the factories started closing and like they lost their base of working class people because the jobs stopped existing. Um, and how that compares to today is kind of hard to say because we don't actually have like a large base of people salting these industries. Um, we're lucky if we recruit people from them already, but yeah. we don't have people actively organizing within them to like, I don't know creative yeah. like they did right and there was that kind of abortive effort um I, I think of the last convention to do the rank and file strategy right which was basically sort of an attempt to revive the trotskyist um uh you know industrialization strategy of like okay let's get dsa members to enter these strategic sectors join the unions try to push the unions left and it's like i mean the the demographics of DSA are such that actually no one wanted to do that, and so yeah, it it's a great happen. it's yeah. a great right. idea in theory, right? But we just don't have the right. people to do it, right? Yeah, and and it's very voluntaristic, right? It's like just through sheer force of will, which is uh, another element of the Trotskyist tradition, sort of inherited. Um, I, I think by by non Trotskyist organizations on the left is just sort of like okay, let's you know, there's no conception of like of a materialist analysis of how classes tend to behave in the aggregate, right? There's this sort of idea that like, okay, well, I've got the right ideas. Doesn't matter my class position. If you get 10 middle-class kids with the right ideas and send them into the, into the, into the factories, that's going to be just as good as getting 10, you know, working class guys right in those factories. And it's like, well, it's maybe not the case. Um, Maybe not the case, uh, which is not to say, though, that Draper has an altogether, um, you know, clear cut view on uh, the idea of uh, 
as, as he says here in the very passage that you cited, Jamal, the, the work of permeating this class movement with educational propaganda for social revolution. I mean, I think he's committed to that idea that um, there's a, a necessary work of connecting the movement left, if I can use that phrase, and the workers uh, and their various uh, uh, groups, their unions and, and whatnot, right? So that there's a, there are two sort of distinct movements here that I think need to be connected in his in his approach. So for listeners at home, if, if we still have your attention, <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 th- just to move this conversation a little bit further along here, because Draper, I think, does have uh, a strategy uh, to offer us. He's not entirely or, or even, uh, you know, he, he's he's by no means uh, persuaded that uh, his strategy is necessarily going to work. He has no, he, he doesn't claim to have any crystal ball here or, or a perfect roadmap, uh, but he does have a, a sense of uh, two common approaches uh, that the left takes up in his own time frame, which are quite incorrect. And the first would be to attempt to abolish the sect by unifying all the sects together. And of course, he's saying, given what they are, uh, there's no magic wand that we can simply wave that will make sex voluntarily self-dissolve and merge into each other. And then a second point that he raises, which may be more germane to our contemporary context, is uh, to 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 uh, you know he rebuts this idea that uh, we should simply want to create a new sect with a minimal program in the name of some kind of ultra consensus or you know the widest tent possible so what i wanted to ask you guys is where you where you whether you see contemporary resonance uh with with the with these passages you know are are you know for example i see it sometimes come up and jamal earlier on uh, mentioned uh, bread and roses we sometimes see these debates today about you know clean break versus dirty break and that's how i'm kind of interpreting uh the the relevance of his argument today you know is, is, so am i right about that is he trying to you know is he is he sort of foreshadowing what we today call the debate about clean break versus dirty break or is there something else going on here that i'm missing do you think i don't i don't know i mean so so just to understand you you're saying that the comparison here is that clean break versus dirty break is kind of a uh like a a sect style platform disagreement right like well, is that what you mean? Uh, uh, again, just to, to reiterate, I mean, I think you know, in in this, it it comes a little bit later. Um, if we're moving along in the piece, it comes more. I think in the two point, what we have in our version of the piece is two, uh, section two point six, I think. Uh, but uh, you know, he's saying basically, you know, some people they believe that the you should you know that if you have an ultra program, you that that you know, all the other movements will basically kind of self-dissolve into it. He's like, that's just magical thinking. But then the ultra, the other, the alternative is to kind of strip out the program altogether and to just go for a, a big tent consensus. And then you kind of build power, I suppose, until such point as you can effectively break with the Democratic Party. I mean, I, I, not, I'm not, I'm not shoehorning too much in there. I think that's that is kind of what he's saying. Um, so uh, you know, it just it struck me as a as a kind of a as as a as as a little bit similar to some of the debates that we see today. But um, you know, we can cut this bit if it's not necessary. But uh, uh, you know, it, it, he does he does sort of take time before he sets out of his, his stall about what we ought to do. 
um, he does take time to to kind of take down some of these alternative ideas. And I just wondered whether you saw resonance uh, between them and and things that are going on today. Yeah, I mean, Bread and Roses descends in part from the Trotskyist tradition, and it, you know, I'm not the first one to say that they repeat internally various Trotskyist um, sort of habits. This was actually something that contributed to the spring split. And so Dustin Guastella wrote a very interesting email about, um, about sort of the, he, he had this interesting idea that bread and roses people were not even necessarily aware that they were Trotskyists, that they were just repeating things that they had come to understand through some process of osmosis about the importance of cadre, about the importance of, you know, the, the, the program and so on and so forth. Um, and those ideas had a lineage, the Trotskyist tradition, but were not necessarily that was, that lineage was not necessarily apparent to the people making these arguments. Um, I, I think that in practice, the disagreement within Bread and Roses over the 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 dirty break or whatever. I mean, I, I think to a really? certain extent. Yeah, sorry, Julie. Yeah, really. Who the fuck cares? Yeah. I mean, do we give a fuck what Bread and Roses thinks? I don't. Well, yeah, but but it's like so. Yeah, I, but I guess the question that Nick is getting at is like, is this a manifestation of the same kind of sex phenomenon that that uh, that Draper is alluding to here? And I don't know. I I just think that like the the sects of his time were in a way more sophisticated than the sects of our time because they still had some sort of like, you know, intellectual background going on. I, I think we're in a stage of like just decayed sex where it's like no one, no one is really at the level of what the guys in the SWP were at. Even if we think that they were wrong, right. And their politics were bad. Their level of political sophistication was just so much higher than any of the, the groups on the American left today that it's almost kind of like, you don't want to <laughs> to conflate them because, yeah, it, it's just kind of sad. Yeah, and I see like kind of what he's saying as saying like if you have if what you're developing in your sect is like that really wide reaching minimum where there's a lot of points everyone can agree on because they're we're all basically good people, um, and you're bringing in as many people as possible to your big tent. Um, the issue is that as soon as like a, a leftist revolutionary group tries to push this group left by saying like no support to Democrats or else like, you know, like remove Jamal Bowman or whatever. I mean, I think we should. Yeah. Right. But but basically, like if you're pushing a left group with a big tent, like sort of orientation further left, um, they're going to it's going to explode if you are pushing it this way, because at its very core, by having it, it have this sort of like big tent um situation like it it's reformist like it's always going to capitulate towards liberalism and the right wing of socialism and things like that because of its orientation is not revolutionary um so i don't know yeah i think i we see that today with like the dirty break and the dsa and things like that like it's hard to even get a foot in the door for the conversations about splitting with the democrats when the dsa puts forward people like aoc and the squad and like these sorts of high profile figures who bring people into DSA, but they're not bringing in, they're bringing in radical liberals, right? They're not bringing in revolutionary Marxists. Um, so it's a yeah. problem. Yeah. And, and they're not bringing in 
they're not bringing in regular workers either for the most part, right? Like um, AOC attracts basically the same demographic type as is already in DSA, which is largely college educated, middle-class millennials um, who like her because she trends on social media and she wears the, the dress of the Met Gala or whatever. Right. But you know, unlike Bernie Sanders, who attracted large numbers of supporters from all you know class positions because he was making arguments about policy, right? Like Bernie Sanders attracted people because of Medicare for all. He attracted people because people were like, hey, this policy would help me. That's why I like Bernie Sanders, right? AOC is not really a policy first politician. She is a brand image first politician. And so she attracts people who consume politics as though it were a brand, you know, um, on Twitter. And all the polling data that we have says that middle class and affluent people consume politics in this way much more so than working class people. Like the the they're the people who watch cable news 24-7. Like this is this is sort of a a characteristically middle class approach to politics. And yeah, and so it's not just like the orientation of DSA not being revolutionary enough. It's like DSA is incapable of breaking out of this demographic cul-de-sac that it's trapped in. And that is what constrains its politics because its own membership simply doesn't have, there isn't a critical mass of, um, of genuine political radicalism within, within its membership. And this is a problem that, that has been going back, you know, to, to Draper's time or, or earlier, right? Like, yeah. So I, I just want to jump in there if I may, because, um, you know, again, this is a section 2.5 in, in our version of it. Um, but, uh, there's a, there's a very powerful passage and this is, uh, why I guess I raised the question of the clean break versus dirty break debates, uh, today. Uh, because, uh, if you'll forgive me, it's, it's, a it's a, it's a, it's a somewhat uh, long quote, but I think it speaks exactly to what you're saying, Jamal. Um, as long as the life of the organization, whether or not labeled party, is actually based on its politically distinctive ideas rather than on the real social struggles in which it is engaged, it will not be possible to suppress the clash of programs requiring different actions in order to support different forces. Um, the key question becomes the achievement of a mass base. And this, is, I think, is the fascinating part because I think it gets right to the core of it. The key question becomes the achievement of a mass base, which is not just a numerical matter, but a matter of class representation. Given a mass base in the social struggle, the party does not necessarily have to suppress the internal play of political conflict since the centrifugal force of political disagreements is counterbalanced by the centripetal pressure of the class struggle. Without a mass base, a sect that calls itself a party cannot suppress the divisive effect of fundamental differences on, for example, supporting or opposing capitalist parties at home in the shape of liberal Democrats um, and such are supporting are opposing the maneuvers of the communist world. So obviously some of that's a little bit anachronistic, but that, that the earlier part of that paragraph, I think speaks very powerfully as I'm interpreting it anyway. Um, it, it sort of speaks to this idea that, look, um, you know, so long as you have an ideas based politics, which is, I think, kind of what we have and you have essentially a mass base, which I think is what the Democratic Party does and, and the DSA de facto, I think, functions as a, you know, there's a de facto recognition of that in the way the DSA relates to, to the Democratic Party. Um, you are not 
really going to have uh, an ability to break the bind, right? This is why I think, you know, I, I, I myself, I'm always a little bit hesitant to sort of use the accusation of reformism because I think, you know, it, it, it can be too easily used. But I think he's using it well here. He's deeply worried that we get functionally stuck in a reformist trajectory. Um, now, reformism isn't always a bad thing, but if that's all we can muster, then you're left, the left is dead, right? And so we, it's the, the strategy of breaking out of that uh, needs to be at the center of what we're talking about. And 45 years later, after he wrote this, <laughs> right, we are v still very much um, stuck with that debate. I mean, that really struck me. Go ahead, Julie. I, yeah, I think it's hopeful. I think what he's telling us is that when the shit hits the fan, we're all going to get together anyway. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's more like he's saying if we had a mass base, that would be true, right? Because if you're in a mass based party, if you're in a party that encompasses a large enough cross-section of the working class, people from all different walks of life, people from different you know, regions and different industries and so on and so forth. If you're in that sort of party, all these internal conflicts, they can play out harmlessly because fundamentally everyone shares the same interests at the end of the day, right? We can disagree about this or the other thing, but if we all are really, really desperate to get universal health care and a higher minimum wage and you know unions, then we'll you know just sort of okay, let bygones be bygones. Right. We had our fight. Let's let's move on, right? And the issue in in non non mass based formations like sects um, or organizations like the DSA, which is not a mass, it has a large membership. Though, of course, most of that is paper membership and only about, I don't know, 8,000 members are probably actually active in the organization. Um, but either way, it has a relatively large membership. It's not really a sect, I don't think, but it's not a mass party in the sense that it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't encompass any significant sh like cross-section of working class people, right? It is fundamentally a sort of middle-class interest group type party, millennial middle-class interest party um, or, or faction or whatever you want to call it. Um, and because of this, because it's separated from the working class, when you have these political disagreements, which may, as Julie said earlier, actually be personal disagreements at some level that are manifested in a, in a political sense, um, there isn't this um, centripetal, you know, sort of pressure that he mentions of keeping everyone coherent, keeping everyone kind of on the ball, because it turns out that a large share of the, you know, of the membership of, of this organization is not actually desperate for redistributive public policy in the way that the membership of an old school mass membership socialist or, or communist party would have been, right? Like, um, and, and, and this, this goes back to sort of like why, why the only plausible base for a socialist party is the working class. Like, this is not something that, um, like if you are trying to do socialist politics and you don't have a working class base and you have no sort of way of getting a working class base, eventually you're not going to be doing socialist politics anymore. That's just what's going to happen to you. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. No, that's really well said. I, I, and I don't mean to disagree with you. I guess I, I, I'm either misreading 
this passage or I'm reading it in a way that kind of shoehorns my own critique of the contemporary situation into it. I don't know if anyone wants to comment on that or whether you'd like to move on now to his suggested uh, strategies uh, for dealing with this because um, we have um, some interesting kind of maybe slightly anachronistic strategic points being raised here. Uh, so we one of you may want to explain to the listeners uh, what Iskra is and uh, what Lenin was trying to achieve with that. Um, Lenin, of course, is a surprising figure in some ways, as he's often associated with the, the dual power approach that I think many Trotskyists and sect left types glom onto. Maybe that's a controversial claim, but um, but I think the idea is that you're going to have some kind of workers' party growing out of a sect by a process of accretion. Uh, so, I don't know, reading this, I sort of thought, you know, very fine idea, you know, doing a lot of publishing, but maybe another glorified reading circle. What do you guys think Draper is up to uh, with this suggestion? Yeah, I really didn't care. I thought it was really irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, I think basically uh, Leninism isn't the right model for a developed democracy. It has not worked. In a, it's not going to work in developed democracy. We need to be looking basically at the German Social Democratic Party of the pre-World War I era as our model, not to Leninist parties. Um, and that that's that's why, you know, all of this, the Russian question shit is just like, yeah, like Julia said, who the fuck cares? It's not relevant. It's not productive. It, none of these models are going to amount to anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sarah? It's up to you. You've got to defend. You've got to defend Hal Draper here. <laughs> well, one of the points he makes is that at no point in history has a sect grown by accretion. Yeah. Um, and so, and that's true today. There has been no sect that's grown from accretion. We see sects grow from, you know, publication maybe or something like that. But it's not by having the correct political line. It's by like involving themselves in workers' movements. Um, and I think like. Okay, first of all, we never explained what Iskra was, which was it was Lenin's like publication um, to form a Marxist center that could attract workers at their workplace um, and kind of become a pole of thought for people across the world. Um, there is no Iskra today either, though. There's no like formless publication that like we can say is like purely Marxist that like attracts a pole of people to follow behind it. At least that, I mean, maybe labor notes, um, which was, you know, from a Trotskyist background, like we said, um, but I can't think of anything else like that would count as that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think there's also like there's to reject like Leninism outright. I'm not sure if I would either mm-hmm. um, just because, you know, the social conditions are totally different. Like we're not engaged in like civil war right now. Um, yeah, well, I, I think, you know. The the Draper was a product of his time, and in the United States, at least during this time, to be sort of sophisticated and avant-garde on the left meant basically acknowledging the Leninist model as some sort of thing to aspire to, right? And taking some stance on whether or not Stalin had betrayed it, and so on and so forth, right? Um, but the reality is that the Leninist model, where it has worked, it has worked in you know, Russia or China or, you know, various other developing countries that had successful Leninist revolutions. 
but it hasn't worked in developed democracies. It's just not an applicable model. And it's also not as old as the, the older, the, the social democratic party of Germany model. Like that's mm-hmm. 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 really point. the one that, that, that developed world leftists should probably be paying more attention to. And if your sort of model for what could work is what worked in Russia, no, you know, that's not, yeah. that's not what's going to work here. Yeah, uh, well, you well have said. to look, you have to look at the old, you know, mass, mass parties of the developed world that were able to do that, were able to accomplish something, were able to survive for a time. And you look at what they did and you don't, you know, you don't get lost in this kind of like Russian shit because this is a party formation that emerged in the context of extreme state repression, direct state repression, not indirect repression like we have in the United States where the FBI will like, you know, infiltrate <laughs> and kind of like, you know, seduce people and, you know, kind of that kind of thing. But like actual direct state repression, it's a very different situation. The, the, the tactics that you need to adopt and that people will accept in that kind of situation are very different from the tactics that would work in, in interdeveloped country well let's um let, let's let's move to the end of the piece so i thought i did think the ending of the piece was perhaps for me um one of the stronger parts uh right up there with the you know the, the, the description of the sect itself and the the predicament uh, of the left today vis-a-vis sects um so you know it's it's having just sort of answered the question what is to be done at the macro scale which i think we've all just said we we basically kind of find a little bit too leninist and irrelevant uh given uh you know the fact that we live in a broadly speaking a social democracy um but uh then he sort of kind of cuts this interesting uh you know orthogonal direction to the individual level uh where he says you know uh so so what do you do you know what does what does one do just as a private individual who interested in sort of advancing the the cause of socialism and he puts forward this what he calls it a two-barreled strategy and the first of these uh strategies is to try to get involved in the promotion of militant unionism for example by getting involved in workplace centered or at least workplace focused socialist groups uh kind of reminded me a little bit of Jane McAlevey's book, No Shortcuts, uh, where she, of course, is one of the key contemporary uh, authors uh, focused on, you know, trying to identify the distinction between, you know, organic leaders and sort of self-selecting leaders. I always find that uh, such an important point. And uh, I think, you know, it's, it, that that's right there in Hal Draper's um, uh, backyard for this. You know, he's, he's definitely, I think, uh, down with that argument. So, and then the second barrel, uh, the second approach to, to, to sort of work locally to create these, these, uh, literary strategic centers, I guess, on the Iskra model. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, so where do you all sort of come in on this question of like what, what the individual today is sort of confronted with as a as a sort of strategic proposition, right? You know, what 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 does do, do does the individual find something here in these arguments or in these this two barrel strategy, or ought we to be looking somewhere else? Well, for me, like when I read this, I saw like how he said that you are basically your own political center, like you're a unit of one, and from there you can start expanding. Um, And I took that to mean that, like, we should be organizing our own workplaces and organizing around the issues that directly affect us. 
like locally. Um, and from there, building a base and not through accretion, but through actual like movement practice, like building a like core caucus within your union um, where you like fight for union leadership, fight for better contract negotiations, things like that. Just involving yourself as much as possible or building up your own union through like the IWW or through like Amazonians United or something like that, where you're actually in control of the union and um, basically canceling out like the possibility of a reformist labor bureaucracy to take it over because you are the labor bureaucracy with your friends. Um, And I think like in terms of like creating like um, more agitational material for like an ISCRA type thing. We have like the internet, which is something that Hal Draper didn't have. So we have like this, we still are lucky enough to have one internet that's large and connected all across the, the whole world. Right. So we can find ways to like, you know, uh, connect with other people to come up with a Marxist center. That's different from the ones in the past that might actually like have the solutions, the technological solutions that can reach across class boundaries um, and help working people achieve like sort of, you know, what they want, what they desire, which is revolution. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Julie. I think the first part of what he was saying was to organize where you are. Yeah. And um, yeah, if you're in a unionized work site or a work site that you can unionize, like your number one spot that you can do that is in the union. But I think for a lot of people, I would like to think that the DSA is that's that what I was wondering. Yeah. That you can organize. I mean, that's what we're here for to plug in and organize in our communities. And if we're not, then what's the purpose of the DSA? I mean, Mm -hmm. that is the purpose of the DSA. So we have to take some of these organizing strategies uh, that unions uh, obviously know how to do very well. People like Jane McAlevey know how to do this very well. Uh, Find those organic uh, leaders and actors who can can, uh, sort of become left entrepreneurs a controversial framing perhaps, but nevertheless, I I think I'm happy to stand by it for now. Uh, And uh, yeah, this is, I think, how successful DSA chapters are born for sure. Jamal. Yeah, so I think that he's absolutely right that at the basic level, you just have to find a circle of what he calls co-thinkers around you uh, in your local area and build up from there, right? Like that's the only way that that politics works fundamentally. Um, and I think we've had, you know, since his time, we, we've had certain perhaps positive um, examples, um, not really in the United States. You know, I'm of the opinion that the only kind of positive left political example in the United States at the moment uh, with the demise of the Bernie campaign is Shama Sawant in Seattle, mm. Socialist Alternative City Council member. Um, and Socialist Alternative obviously is a, a, a sort of sect. I think Draper would probably characterize it as a sect. It's not the worst Trotskyist sect that's ever existed, though. But, um, the, but, but they have managed to accomplish something at a local level. Right. For sure. Um, It hasn't really it hasn't really been able to expand nationally, um, but it does give you a sort of there is some hope there. Like if you can figure out 
the right combination of tactics, the right people, you know, if, if, if everything comes together in just the right way, you could accomplish something at the local level. It could be coherent. It could be robust enough to kind of survive successive waves of, of capitalist retaliation. And um, if, if you look at Austria, this is a, <coughs> something that I actually did on Burnfin's podcast. We talked about the Communist Party of Austria. I don't know if you guys have, have been reading these articles, but the Communist no. Party of Austria, which is a very small party, it, it basically has no presence in the national legislature at all. It gets like 0.5% of the vote or something. They have slowly but surely built up their power in Austria's second largest city to the point that they recently won the municipal elections there. Wow. That's amazing. And they did this just by literally just, we, we stick to our local area. We just, you know, we, we organize people, we experiment with different tactics. They basically decided that housing policy was going to be their issue. And so they just deepened their involvement in that issue over, over decades, basically. They didn't like ping pong around. They just like, okay, we're going to do housing policy. We're going to figure out how to actually help people one-on-one with their housing problems. We're not just going to be like a political advocacy group that tries to like pass laws because obviously passing laws is good. But if you go up to, you know, working people are like, Hey, we want to pass this law. They're going to like, okay, that's not going to happen. So why am I going to fucking waste my time with you? You know, like everyone comes along and says, we're going to pass laws. Nothing ever gets passed. You know, so basically their thing was like, okay, we're going to obviously we're going to talk to them about the laws we want to pass, but we're also going to help them with if they've got a problem with their landlord, we can provide them with legal support. You know, if their heat has been turned off in the winter, you know, we can find a, a, a repairman or an electrician to go and try to fix it for them. You know, if they are having trouble finding housing, we can help them find the housing. They set up these like little housing offices all around the city. You could come if they didn't charge anything. Anyone could show up. And they basically just over the course of decades built this actually this actual social base in the city because the people who they helped, a lot of them joined the party or they told their friends, hey, you know, when I had trouble, you know, the communists were there for me. That actually worked. And that was how the Communist Party of Austria was able to kind of break free of this sect problem, get itself in actual contact with the working class in such a way that the working class began to permeate the the party to to the extent that it was no longer being blown this way and that it was no longer constantly freaking out about program and the stupid bullshit it sort of it was grounded in class struggle in in exactly the way that draper uh you know sort of advocates for and that's that's the only thing that that has any chance of working right now the question is can you imagine a dsa chapter maintaining that level of single-minded focus and discipline over the course of two or three decades. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but thinking of my comrades in Cleveland and chop their housing initiative and mm-hmm. good, good um, call. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I don't know. I mean, could they keep it going for three decades? I don't know. Three decades Probably is a not. long time. And, you know, three decades will change you as much as it's the, that kind of project will, will transform a, a chapter, will transform any sect, I think, if it's, if it's applied to that task. So, uh, you I know. mean, just think of all the cancellations you have to survive to like <laughs> three decades. Right. That would, that would be a lot. But again, you know, uh, as Jamal was saying, you know, over time, 
you're going to have the working class permeating the 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 entity as uh as as various uh organic uh leaders and and actors within the working class uh begin to recognize uh you know this this just to me just speaks very loudly of Jane McLevy's argument once again you know that that these organic leaders uh she famously says you know they it's it's not like they don't want to do the work, but they're not going to just like put their time into something that's a flash in the pan. They understand that they have tons of energy to devote to these kinds of activities, but they understand also that these activities come at a cost for them. And they want to see a structure, a vehicle that, you know, is safe to invest in, that's going to have longevity, and that's going to protect them when they're sort of sticking their ass into the fire a little bit, you know, because they're going to get targeted. So, you know, successful, I think the Cleveland example is great. Or like, you know, the um, the Preston model in the UK, it's, it's actually basically borrowed its model from Cleveland, um, the, the, the Cleveland housing project and the, the sort of Cleveland municipal political development strategy that's going on right now. Uh, so, uh, you know, th those kinds of uh, projects, I think, you know, show how movements can you know, scale and deliver working class strategies uh, at the municipal and local levels, uh, which, you know, it can't just be hand waved away. I mean, those those can be the bases, I think, of of um, of of new kinds of power, because, of course, on many of these municipalities have purchasing power, right? They have local budgets, they have their own local uh, sort of taxation structures, they can uh, encourage in the in the in the medium term, if, if we take them over, uh, we can uh, leverage that purchasing power to keep money circulating in the economy, to make sure that we're purchasing from uh, union shops, producers that share our values, you know, and, and encourage, I think, important forms of change. So any last words, every, anyone? I mean, obviously, we have to kind of like uh, wrap this up at some point, but, uh, you know, well, I mean, one of the things that I really wanted to talk about that we just barely touched on was Palestine, because I think that's what Hal Draper, you know, what he's talking about. That's Palestine hitting us today. And I don't know about you, but in my chapter, it's it's been pretty controversial. Um. Yeah, because, I mean, you have some people like me who think that's an absolute moral issue. And then you have other people saying like, well, maybe strategically it's not the right time to push Palestine. I mean, we have to take other considerations into view. And um, I, I think if it's not a... Um, watershed moment in dsa that it should be and i think we should force it which is exactly maybe the opposite of what hal draper would suggest but that's where i'm at and so that's the conflict like do we just say oh yeah whatever like uh there's genocide in palestine but you know let's pursue this left unity and you don't want to like make waves or, or what do we do? I mean, class unity made a statement and it was a strong statement and I stand behind it. Um, but I mean, 
it, it's maybe it's even too much for me to think that there is going to be like schisms over Palestine because maybe Palestine is just so insignificant to most Americans that it won't even matter. Yeah, the the DSA Palestine issue is is very interesting because it's like it's only somewhat about the issue itself, right? Like everyone in DSA at this point claims to agree on the subject of Palestine. Um, so the actual disagreement is actually um, what is our relationship to our elected officials, and should we expect to be able to tell them what to do? And this is an issue where we're actually having the debate because the organization is actually united around this issue, right? It's one of the very few sort of public policy issues where the entire organization is nominally on the same side, which is pro-Palestine. Um, there's really no, I mean, there were some labor Zionists in DSA back in the old days, but they're pretty much long gone. So everyone's pro-Palestine these days. Everyone's pro-BDS more or less, you know, but so does that mean we actually get to tell our politicians, okay, we all actually agree on this. It's not just something that's in our platform. It's something that is in our platform, yes, but we also actually agree on it, unlike all the other stuff in the platform that we just kind of stuck in there, right? <coughs> do we get to tell you what to do now? And a lot of people are saying, no, even though we all agree on this, we still don't get to tell the politicians what to do. We still don't get to exert any sort of control over them. They still are the ones calling the shots because it's not strategic for us to, it's like, what, what strategy is this that we're pursuing here? Whereas it's like, we elect these politicians that are just like, okay, do whatever you want. And, you know, it'll benefit us somehow. It's not going to benefit us. Like, I, I don't understand this. Like if, if, yeah, it, it just makes no sense. And so let me, uh, maybe, and, and, um, yeah, I, I want to, I don't know if I can do this coherently, but the, um, one of the things that struck me was the parallel with what he, his conversation in the piece about the Vietnam War and the concern he had was that, uh, you know, the anti-war movements, uh, and he, he, he takes it, I think, as a given that they were kind of basically ahead of the, uh, chronologically in, in advance of the workers' uh, movements uh, in opposing the war. And I don't think he has a problem with that. Uh, what he had a problem with was this kind of then turning around uh, you could sort of see a parallel with today's kind of hyper woke uh, kind of politics, uh, where uh, you know, sort of like tr treating the uh, the workers as sort of a an inevitable an, an inevitable kind of deplorable sector of the American population that was never even worth reaching out to in terms of trying to pursue its agreement uh, or, or its allyship in fighting the Vietnam War. I think it's more relevant, not the part where he's talking about Vietnam, but um, the part where he's talking about, do we interact with the Democrats? And I think that Jamal Bowman is answering that question because he's saying, does he interact with us and how? But Jamal and Bowman in this, his, not to talk his, over you, Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I was just going to say, yeah. he just seems to completely ignore the DSA. So why is the DSA so worried about... <laughs> mm. why, why is the DSA so worried about their statement on Jamal Bowman when Jamal Bowman could clearly care less? But do you... Here, here's, I guess here's my claim. You know, Bowman in this instance is... Um, Maybe not Draper exactly, but he is uh, the voice that is arguing that the DSA consensus 
you know, even if it exists, ought to kind of calm down because it's getting too far ahead of ordinary Americans. I'll show that asshole calm down. I'm yeah, an ordinary you- <laughs> fucking American. Yeah, right. Well, I know, I, but I'm just I saying, think- like, do you get my point, though, the parallel I'm trying to make? I, I'm just sort of doing a devil's advocate argument here yeah, yeah. in his defense and also in defense of, I mean, that's what I think I'm seeing, like with Thadas, uh, 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 Thir, um, you know, in Jacobin was making this point, uh, just, uh, last week, you know, so th- the, the, the idea is kind of like, not yet, you know, we're not the, we're, we're, we, the DSA cannot, and the American left cannot get too far ahead of the, the American, American left here. cannot get too far ahead of worrying about children being fucking murdered in a genocide. I mean, for real. Yeah. Like the, the thing about Bum, so I think that Draper's point about the sort of the middle class, you know, the new left kind of flouncing out of the labor movement because the labor movement, you know, was not advanced enough on Vietnam. And that being a mistake, you know, is obviously mm-hmm. correct. Right. Um, and, and obviously, like the American labor movement is not particularly pro-Palestine. And I wouldn't advocate that DSA sort of, you know, adopt a hostile stance to a labor union just because it's it's not pro-Palestine enough. Right. Um, so so I think I think the difference here is that Jamal Bowman is a he's an individual politician. Right. He's not a, he's not a labor movement. He's not a representative of working people, except as far as he's elected in his district by him. I think mostly middle-class primary electorate. Um, And as a political party, our role towards elected officials is very specific, right? We're supposed to be telling them what to do. And (laughs) if we tell them what to do in a way that is politically disadvantageous for them, that's actually good for us in a sense, because it's a form of honest signaling. It tells us which politicians we actually have control over and which we don't have control over. And that's information that we need to know because we we have we only have limited ways to leverage against politicians. And so if a politician is saying, no, I'm not going to do what you want me to do on this issue, then we know, okay, so we actually don't have any influence over this guy maybe we shouldn't be investing resources into his future campaigns, right? Because when push comes to shove, if he doesn't back us on this issue, who knows what he's going to do when some other issue comes along that we really need and that he's not going to support us for, right? And and that's why I think it was important that, you know, Class Unity's statement on Jamal Bowman specifically said that we were only calling for his expulsion because as an elected official, he was not obeying sort of the the demands of the movement. Um, a lot of other statements were saying anyone who doesn't support BDS or anyone who mm. you know doesn't support Palestine should be expelled from the organization. And we weren't saying that because you know there there is a clear difference between internal democracy and allowing people in the organization who have opinions you may disagree with and a, an elected politician disobeying the organization, right? Like those are two very different things and the standard has to be completely like the standard for an elected politician must be much, much higher than for a rank and file yes. member. Yes. Um, we'll and I guess that's, I'm not sure if that sort of resolves the the contradiction that you were sort of hinting at, Nick, but I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the difference between our relationship to the labor movement, you know, the, the institutional representation of the interests of the working class has to be, you know, we have to be relatively subordinated uh, not subordinated to the labor, labor movement, but we have to be sort of 
respectful of the institutional legitimacy of the labor movement and its sort of right to make its own decisions at its own pace, you know, in a way that we absolutely do not have to be for elected politicians. Like it's not their job to make their decisions at their own pace. It's their job to do what the movement wants them to do because that's why we're supporting them. And if, if they don't do what we want them to do, we need to be supporting other candidates, you know, in other races, potentially who will. Guys, this was great. Thank you so much for joining us uh, t- t- tonight. Uh, this is again our first uh, episode, and it was uh, <laughs> it was it's uh, you know I, I think it's it's kind of a historic moment. I think uh, you know th- this is a, a project that uh, you know we're, we're we're just sort of in the early days of here, and uh, we uh, have big dreams and big hopes for for this show. I think uh, the high level of tonight's intellectual engagement uh, with this particular article is uh, a sign of things to come. I, I do really want to thank uh, again, Julie, Sarah and Jamal for, for, for joining me uh, to discuss this very interesting piece. And uh, we'll be joining you back again uh, in a few weeks time with another episode. And uh, we, will, we will have some more uh, from the CU Education Store. Hope you enjoyed the episode and we will uh, talk to you again soon. All the best. 